The battle lines are drawn. There are parents who want their kids to stay home, and there are parents who want their kids in school, and we're seeing friction developing. It's one of the subjects we'll be discussing on this episode of This Week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I'm here with Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, and Chris Warnowski, ready for another week of hot news in Northeast Ohio, so let's get to it. What did federal investigators take out of Larry Householder's office when they raided it? Jane Cahoon, this story will continue to develop, I think, for many, many months. But it was a little bit of a surprise that this laid into it. They showed up in his state house office, or I guess it's his office building office, to take stuff away. And I thought it was interesting what they took away. So let's talk about that. Well, let me get straight to your favorite one, Chris. That would be a framed photo of a nuclear power plant. (laughs) I mean, every every office should have one of these, right? Don't you think? That's just bizarre. Yeah, yeah. So they were they were after something like six boxes and four envelopes containing computers and storage devices, records and calendars and call lists and photos, as I said. And um, as well as evidence of like who was using the computers and how. But what they came out with was nine folders with papers, a team householder cap, a paper calendar, some thank you cards and thank you letters from places like Duke Energy and an iPhone, a hotspot and uh, an envelope marked attention Jeff personal, which one assumes is Jeff Longstreth, one of the uh, his chief advisor who who's also been charged in this. Okay, there, there's just fun stuff to unpack with this, but we should point out this is all part of the investigation. He's charged. He's been indicted by a federal grand jury with racketeering and what has been described in court documents as a $60 million bribery scheme funded by First Energy uh, leading to the bailout of their their close to decrepit nuclear plants. So the team householder hat, part of the documents describe how the householder identified people that he would support to run for the house so they could elect him to be the house speaker. So do we have the indication that he gave out baseball caps to people running as team householder? I thought that was... A federal creation, but maybe not. <laughs> or maybe somebody just gave it to him, you know, had it made and, and gave it to him. I don't know that these lawmakers all ran around wearing team householder caps, you know. But but the framed photo of the nuclear plant, while it's you know, it's humorous and it's fun and we can make fun of it, it there is a statement there, right? It's like he's so mm-hmm. in the pocket of the utility industry that he has a framed photo of a nuclear plant. The only thing that would make it worse was like autographed by the first energy CEO <laughs> who's done nothing unethical as he keeps telling you. I just, I don't get why you would hang that up on your wall because anybody that comes into your office would look at that and think, man, you really are in the pocket of the utilities. What, you know, is he oh, just- it's for our energy strategy, Chris. It's, it's, it's sound policy for the state of Ohio, he would say. I wonder if if they were just so successful in their scam, they became brazen. I mean, to have a team householder hat and a framed photo of a nuclear plant is thumb in your nose at the entire state of Ohio. It's like, look at me. I can do anything I want to do. You can't do anything about it. I had an interesting set of communications this weekend. I, I wrote my letter from the editor column 
on Saturday about how on that first day that the arrest of Householder became news, we, our staff did 20 really fully developed stories. And I just asked people, hey, you know, what do you think? You judge us. And while almost everybody came back and said, you guys did a phenomenal job on first day, where were you when all this was going on? And I haven't responded yet, but I will. But my answer would be, we covered the hell out of that, but nothing stopped it. I mean, there was, it wasn't a mystery that all this was going on. God, how many stories do you think we did during the run up to this, Jane? Oh, 50, I can't count. You know, not just the debate, but, you know, we went deeper into the dark money and the, you know, the claims and counterclaims here and, and the stench of this and so forth. The, uh, uh, this is Laura Johnston, the commercials saying it was all China kind of right, take your, right, your privacy right. away. I think there was just a feeling that they were, operating maybe at the edge of the law, but not outside of the law. And and they thought this was perfectly fine. I mean, just judging from what we've heard so far about what the defense is going to be. But, See, I didn't. Um, sounds a lot like the um, Jimmy DeMora defense. Like, everybody does this. This is how government works. <laughs> yeah, I, never, I never believe they're operating within the law. But, but we, I mean, we did everything we could do without subpoena power. With the, what the federal agents could do was wiretap their phones with a judge's order and start right. to collect evidence that, you know, if journalists started wiretapping phones, I think people might have a little bit of a problem with that. Yeah. But, hey, but let's the, be fair. I have, I have some trouble with the government doing it too. But we won't get into that. <laughs> okay. Chris Wernowski. I, I, but I do think the takeaway and it's a big one from the, the, the search warrant that was executed, the raid of his office was the brazenness with which they operate. I mean, to put Team Householder on a hat, it's like wink, wink, nudge, nudge, ha, 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 look what we're getting away with. And the frame nuclear plant, that's just, that's just wackadoodle. You're, <laughs> you're listening to this week in the CLE. It looks like the situation on whether schools will open as scheduled is coming into focus. So what's the picture? Laura Johnston, the picture is conflict. There oh are furious parents and there are furious teachers and everybody is boiling mad. There's the side that thinks going back into the schools is crazy. And there's a lot of evidence to support that. And then there are the parents who just want their kids back in school and out of the house because they're working from home and they can't be full-time parents and full-time employees. So where do we stand after last week's recommendation by the Cuyahoga Board of Health that all schools in Cuyahoga County work remotely for the beginning of the year. We started to get the decisions mm-hmm. late Friday. We did. And and some of these are not final and they have to go through board uh, meetings and, and votes. But it looks like almost every district is saying, okay, we're going to start remotely at least. Uh, Parma was the latest last night that put out its statement. And it was the first that I've seen in the statement actually mentioned the legal ramifications of why it's doing it. It said their legal counsel reinforced the importance of the CCBH and advised we follow their guidance. So when the Board of Health comes out and says, don't go back to school, guys, these districts are listening. So we have 31 districts in the county, I believe. We have a rundown on the front page of The Plain Dealer today and on cleveland.com of the latest information from all these districts. And most of them suspended sports immediately and said, we're going to go online. Now we're seeing petitions and rallies from parents that are saying, we had good plans. We met as a community and decided we were okay with that. And you can't tell us what to do. And most of these these school boards have already had remote 
plans in place for students that wanted to opt in. And I think a lot of parents are just saying, you made this call too early. You're making it without us. And we want to stay. There are a couple of things. One, we have Corey Schaefer working on a story about whether there is actually a legal ramification. And while he's still working it, the early word is not really that that as long as they're operating in the best interest and they're not being reckless, they have qualified immunity. So it's interesting that Parma mentioned legal ramifications. Again, Corey is continuing to work. But the second thing is I'm surprised. I get that parents who disagree with this are angry about it, but Mm -hmm. I'm a little bit surprised that parents would show up for a rally to say, I want my kids in school because you're basically showing up to protest to say, I want to take some risk. I mean, that's what this comes down to. It is a risk. And look, we saw over the weekend, there was a school in Indiana that opened immediately. A kid tested positive. And look what's going on with baseball. I mean, Major League Baseball has taken every precaution imaginable so that they can play a season. And every day, games seem like they're being canceled because more people are getting it. I, I just, if you're a parent looking at that, how do you get to the point where you go to a protest to say, I want my kid in that situation? Can I just say something? This is Chris Wernowski. Um I don't know a lot of school districts that are as deep pocketed as the major league <laughs> baseball organization. Like, like the uh, amount of the amount of resources, science, and effort that have gone into getting sports restarted in this country. It, you know, to think that there are school districts out there that are struggling to get basic supplies already, and and to to just shoehorn kids back into these schools and think that there's going to be no problems is is insane to me. Like I just, well, it, it, I can't even begin to imagine how that's going to work. You're right, Chris. I mean, I've seen a lot of discussion on social media these days about the fact that schools are cash strapped. I mean, they were had $300 million cut from their budgets in the spring and everyone's saying, where were you in the cuts before? You're so concerned now. But I think a lot of this discussion has been on either or, either we're back in the classroom, either with a modified schedule or we're doing this all by a computer and you're staying at home. And I've seen very little innovation and creativity about how else it could work. I mean, there's some talk about tents, you know, with tents in Utah going up. And I guess they did it during the tuberculosis outbreak more than a hundred years ago. And I just, I wish there was just some other solution. But the truth is, Laura, even if the kids go back to school, they're going to be on screens talking to their teachers anyway. The teachers aren't going to be able to get close to them because of all the distancing. They're going to be separated by plastic and Really, they'll be talking to them via the same kind of screens in many ways that they would be talking to at home. But at home, you you don't have the risk of the infection spreading. And I just I'm surprised it's become such an angry thing with the parents. Like it, it's the districts are trying to look out for the kids. The health board is trying to look out for the kids and the teachers. And yet there's this fury like I want my kids back in school. I just, I think it's really difficult. The kids, the mental health issues, any kid that struggles. I mean, some kids are going to do just fine online learning. There are a lot of kids that are not. There are a lot of kids that didn't even attend these online sessions. And so you're going to leave some kids behind. I I don't envy those teachers that get a whole class list of kids they do not know trying to figure out how to teach them over Zoom because they they don't have a relationship. I just think it's going to be very difficult all around. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. How did the Cleveland School of the Arts let an abuser near students for years? And what are some of the students doing about it now? 
Chris Ranowski, this was a story that originally came up some years ago. The guy was cleared, I guess, and then was able to spend lots more years with students. And now it turns out not so clear. I'm just a little bit surprised the Cleveland School of the Arts didn't pay closer attention knowing what the allegations had been previously. So can you bring us up to date on this story? Right. So a couple of weeks ago, John Coniglia wrote a story about a warrant being issued for a, a teacher by the name of Terrence Green, who had previously been accused of abusing a student. Uh, this was back, I think, in 2004. He was found not guilty during a bench trial, and he returned to the school and continued to teach. He left the Cleveland School of Arts and later worked at Cuyahoga County Community College, uh, where he led the school's dance academy. Uh, and that's with and the young kids. It's not right. They train students from the ages of six to 18. So last week on Friday, five former students uh, filed suit against the Cleveland Board of Education, alleging that they were sexually abused for years by Green. And the suit is, it's pretty detailed and, and we sort of spared the public a lot of the more sort of specific details about this, but it does, it does say that he groomed his victims by manipulating them and building relationships based on trust. And yeah, and it came a week after the Cleveland police issued a warrant for his arrest, charging him with sexual battery involving a student back in 2008. And I, you know, I, it's still unclear whether or not he's in custody or not. We, we tried to reach out to him and we couldn't talk to find him. So I, it, as of right now, as of Monday morning at nine o'clock, we, we don't know if he's in custody or has been, okay. if he's talked to police. So, so the school's answer keeps being, well, he wasn't a teacher. He was a paid consultant, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> right. They paid him to work with kids. And at the trial, pretty serious allegations were raised and a judge determined he wasn't guilty or that there wasn't enough evidence to, to prove his guilt. But the school was aware that students felt so strongly about his behavior that they, they went to the authorities to get him prosecuted. I, I just, I get that once he's acquitted, you say, okay, you know, he's, he's clear, he can keep doing it. I'm just surprised that when you bring him back into proximity of the students, you don't have some safeguards in place because the, the, the story, I didn't read the lawsuit as, as I guess you and John did, but the story shows a diabolical plotting to just get inside these kids' heads, get their trust, and then abuse them over and over again in numerous places. Yeah, it says that he, he preyed on these children who, and, he, and it says that he specifically found emotionally vulnerable children and uh, one of them said that he was sexually abused about 20 times over the course of two years. And you're right. Uh, you know, the, the, the justification basically has been, well, he worked as a contract instructor for, yeah, that's like preposterous. you know, five years. And it's like, okay, but you, you know, his, his tax paperwork still says your place of business. So, you know, I don't, I don't know what kind of defense that is. I mean, my guess is there's probably some, attorney saying, well, you know, don't call him a full-time employee and, you know, it, your liability won't be there, but, you know, we'll I don't know. We'll I see. Can, you can make a very strong argument that their qualified immunity goes up in smoke on this because they were reckless in not putting in the safeguard. I mean, how many kids have suffered because they didn't pay close attention? It's a it's an interesting story. It's on our website. I suggest people check it out. It's this week in the CLE. 
Why is this week a clear signal that Ohio is a battleground street in the presidential election? Jane Cahoon, the candidates are coming. <laughs> yes, we're very excited. Well, sort of virtually, really. But as you know, the, the polls have been showing a tighter race in, in what should have been a relatively easy victory for Trump, but that, you know, he's having to put in resources. So what's happening this week, the concrete signs are that the, the Biden campaign's ramping up its efforts here with more staff and TV commercials and a number of these if they're having like a virtual tour. And then the president is coming to town Thursday for a private high dollar fundraiser in Bratinal where, you know, you could pay anywhere from $5,600 up to $100,000, depending on if you want to photo or participate in a roundtable with him. But Biden's push is is going to hammer on the economy and what has happened with the coronavirus and what they say are Trump's broken promises to, to working people in Ohio. They're, they're calling it a made in America tour and uh, local officials are, are going to be at these virtual events. And then Sherrod Brown's going to wrap the whole thing up on right. Friday with some kind of round table. All right. So let, let, let's put this into perspective. So we got Biden out talking to the working people and we got Trump going to the Shoreby Club in Bratton Hall. <laughs> now, I don't know if any of you have ever been to the Shoreby Club, but I've been there a couple of times for, for events. And this is the definition of hoity-toity. I mean, it is. I mean, one, it's set way back from the road. So good luck anybody seeing anything. And, it, you know, it's it's Bratton Hall, which is posh. And then this place is posh. What's the message there? You know, <laughs> Trump keeps trying to argue he's here for the little guy. And he is going to probably one of the five most exclusive settings in all of Northeast Ohio to collect big bucks from the rich. I mean, that, it's a fascinating yeah. contrast. Bit of a this contrast, week. yeah. yeah this, is, just, this is Chris Ronowski. I if, if you're not getting a lesson from the Larry Householder story, it's you go where the money is at. <laughs> and that's how you yeah. win elections. But then you've got a message somehow that that I'm not in the pocket of rich people. I I, I just I think well, it's cognitive brilliant. dissidence plays a big role in his success. So let's not let's not ignore that. <laughs> I think it's a smart move by Biden to to push in Ohio at the very moment that uh, Trump is showing up in Brattonall's hoity toity Shorby Club. So anyway, it is it gets back to my original point. We are in play, right, Jane? Yes, we are. I mean, even polls of likely voters, uh, those seem to be giving Trump a, a slight edge, but the, the race is close. Yeah, it'll be, I think it'll come down to the wire. It's also going to come down to the to the voting patterns, the mail-in. Versus and the money. The, right. And the money. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Schools might be staying closed to protect children, but that raises other problems for the safety of children. What is Cuyahoga County doing to help parents find daycare and to ferret out child abuse cases that authorities normally learn of through teachers in the schools? Laura Johnston, Courtney Estoffi put together a pretty frightening story showing how far child abuse complaints have dropped during the coronavirus. About 16 percent of the cases that are reported come through teachers so what is Cuyahoga County doing to find those cases? Because nobody believes abuse has stopped. They actually believe it's gone up. And what are they doing to help parents find daycare now that the schools are staying closed? 
So those are, are two very good questions that I think a lot of people want to talk more about. But um, just to put this in perspective, the Cuyahoga County Division of Children and Family Services re- received about 1,500 complaints of abuse or neglect in April and May. Compare that to April and May last year when they got about 3,000. So we're talking half of the number of complaints. Complaints in June were up a little bit. They were up to 960, and that was within about a less than 100 of the June last year. So those two months really show you what happens when everybody is kind of in a shutdown um, mode. So the county created an online portal to accept complaints as a way to encourage abuse reports while kids are out of school because social workers are very concerned that these incidents of abuse are not being reported. Teachers are mandatory reporters. They have to tell the county if they believe anything is going on. So if you know, if I see somebody at the grocery store when I think is mistreating their kid, I'm not required to report it. But if a teacher had it in the class, they would be. So this online portal hopefully will help. And I think there are going to be more discussions about what else they can do. As for daycare, uh, at a press briefing on Friday afternoon, uh, County Executive Armin Budish said officials are searching for solutions. And this is his quote. It's complicated. We're working on it. And we recognize how difficult it is. Well, I don't think anybody recognizes how difficult it is more than you because you've been <laughs> working full time in an important job while while raising children at home. Uh, what, what are the possible solutions? I mean, do, is there is there a capacity issue? Is it a money issue? What What are the possibilities here for somebody like you who has you know, your kids aren't young. They're, they're elementary school kids. Right. So, right. you know, you can't put them in daycare during the day because they're going to have to be doing remote learning. Well, How right. would daycare help you? Well, there's, so there's a lot of questions about this. We actually got an email from the YMCA, which our kids have been lucky enough to be in their aftercare program for a couple of years. And they were planning to host some kind of care during the school day. Our our school was planning to do mornings or afternoons. So you would have been able to send your kids away all day anyway um, and be at the Y the other half of the day. So whether they're going to be offering some kind of care for school-aged children, it's possible. Shaker Heights is talking about having their rec center provide care for kids um, during a normal workday, even using some of the classroom space in the schools, which is uh, interesting. Um, I have parents that I know talking about creating pods of families where you get like maybe four kids together of the same grade and either have a parent or hire a tutor to like watch them do their lessons, uh, be able to answer questions, give kids some kind of socially distant socialization. Um, I think people are starting to think about what this is going to mean because a lot of companies are talking about going back to work. And it's one thing if you're trying to manage it all from home. It's a completely different one if you have to go into an office. But this is something everybody needs to figure out. Well, and Layla Tassi's working on a piece. The Boys and Girls Clubs are trying to do something where they bring kids in to help them during the school day. But doesn't all of that, the pods, the daycare, the the Boys and Girls Club, kind of counteract exactly yeah. what the schools are trying to avoid. I mean, if you exactly. even if you get four kids together that are that are unrelated, it's a small group. But if one of them ends up with the coronavirus, you're spreading the coronavirus. You have a super spreader. Right. I mean, isn't the purpose of not opening the schools to get kids to stay home and not circulate the virus? So how does that work? I mean, yes. 
and but school has a lot of issues. It has busing. It has all of these employees that are also in the school, some who might be in vulnerable populations. I mean, sports have been happening all summer. You've had baseball teams playing together with 12 kids on a team. I mean, it's not like people have been sitting in their houses all summer. It ha- They haven't been. The pools have been open. You know, if we can figure out how to open a pool and a gym and a bar and have sports, like we should be able to come up with something that educates kids. Okay, mom. It's this week <laughs> in the CLE. Why is a criminal case against the grandson of Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson staying in juvenile court over the objections of County Prosecutor Michael O'Malley? Chris Warnowski, this is interesting, and I wonder if this is a bit of a result of the prosecution of another one of his grandsons going over the over the line and and a judge recognizing that maybe there's too much vigor going on with respect to the, the mayor's family. Well, we don't know the thinking behind the judge's decision just yet, as the order was not available as of 4 p.m. Friday when we learned about this, but... A judge did rule that the case uh, of his great-grandson will remain in the county's juvenile court. Um, A little background on this, the the teenager and another boy who was 17 at the time, this was back in July of 2019, um, they were each charged with felonious assault um, after a shooting um, and, and, and Cleveland police gang unit officers testified at a hearing. Uh, in September that they were investigating a group of people drinking in the middle of the street on East 86 and Quincy Avenue at about 1145 at night and a car sped by and stopped and a passenger got out and fired two shots at an officer before driving away. An officer testified that he was on patrol a few blocks away and spotted a car that matched the description. And police have said that Jackson's great grandson was driving and was taken into custody while the passenger got out and ran from police. That boy and the method caught. normally in if you're in juvenile court, you, you stay in juvenile court. But if you're 16 or 17 and it's a serious enough offense, the prosecutor can try and have you moved into adult court for more serious penalties, which Correct. they tried to do here and were turned down. But let me let me go back to what I was re- referencing earlier. Another one of the mayor's grandsons or great grandsons was charged, uh, went to I think went to trial last year. Mm-hmm accused of beating a woman with a tire jack or something. And it was controversial because when the case first went to the city prosecutor, they didn't even see it as a misdemeanor. Michael Malley learned about it and they indicted it as a felony, took him to trial and the kid ended up pleading out to a a fairly low level misdemeanor, raising questions about why O'Malley went so hard. As the testimony came out during the trial, the prosecution's case looked extremely weak. And I and I, you just wonder whether that's playing out in the background here that maybe the prosecutor's office is going too hard at some of these cases because it's the mayor. I'm sure that's what the mayor would say. And so that's what the judge is taking into account. Well, do you expect we'll see that order today? Um, hopefully I, you know, I mean, there have been some delays with things in the courthouse as of late, um, as a result of, you know, everything being kind of squirrely because of the coronavirus. I, you know, I, I mean, it's, that's, that's one theory. I think the other theory might be, you know, he's, he's driving and is not accused of shooting and all this. And, and, you know, there may be some other, you know, logic that went behind this. I, you know, my, 
you know, my method is always never to, to, to default to conspiracy first and then, and a sort of, uh, wow, I, explanation I, I don't know about that. What do you guys think? You think Chris's <laughs> default is non-conspiracy theory or conspiracy theory? No, no. comment. Um, but, but Chris also let, let's point out the ACLU has come out pretty hard against the prosecutor's office for putting too many juvenile cases into adult court. That's right. been a, and, a continuing and, and story. Look, you know, it's that it, sometimes it, it, it just depends on what judge you get. You know, I mean, we, we, you know, there's no secret that there are judges in this county that are way bigger hardliners on stuff like this than, than other judges. And so, you know, you may have a judge here who has a, you know, who doesn't like charging juveniles as adults. And, and, you know, I mean, it could be just, I mean, the thinking could be just as simple as that. So, um, but you're right. I mean, we do have, you know, there has been a lot of criticism of O'Malley's office over the charging of juveniles. And, and so, yeah, I guess we'll see when this, we get our hands on this order, exactly what thinking the judge had, or the judge might just say, this is the order and, and not really give any indication as to why she made this decision. So, and then we can speculate all we wish. You're (laughs) listening to this week in the CLE. What are the two groups who sued Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose trying to change in time for the presidential election this November? Jane Cahoon, in any presidential election year, it's guaranteed the Ohio election system will be before judges. And that's now happening. What are the two groups and what are they arguing for? So, yes, Frank LaRose faces two suits and they both have to do with absentee voting, which is expected to be a lot higher this year because of the pandemic and people not wanting to vote in person. LaRose said they normally have like 25% um, absentee and that that could even double. Uh, we do have no fault absentee voting here, which means you, know, you don't need a reason to vote by mail. So they expect a bunch of people to do that. Anyway, the one suit is from the uh, Ohio Democratic Party and the other suit is from the League of Women Voters. The Democrats say that LaRose has the right to allow voters to apply for absentee ballots electronically, you know, as opposed to making people mail in a written form, which they have to do now, which just seems so antiquated. Uh, But they want a judge to agree with them and and allow online or email or fax applications. And, you know, LaRose actually likes the idea of online applications, but I think he thinks the legislature really would need to authorize that. And he doesn't really like the idea of someone emailing that in because it could be subject to like a computer virus or other other mischief. Anyway, well, let, but, me stop, let me stop yeah. you on that one, though. I mean, the lawsuit ha- almost has a presumption like like you can set rules through a court. I mean, it, it's up to the state to set its voting rules and they have to be reasonable. I think, I think LaRose has the power to do this. And that's that's in dispute you know, what the law currently allows. But anyway, the other one is, is I think a little more interesting, the League of Women Voters suit, which includes some other groups, and I think is being handled by the ACLU, that challenges the signature matching process for absentee ballots and ballot applications. And, you know, they note that election workers don't have any handwriting uh, analysis expertise, and, and they can just kind of, you know, they can just throw out ballots and even applications without voters getting notified or, or a chance to, to correct the problems. And on that one, LaRose said, you know, he's willing to work to improve the process. But I think he thinks, you know, both of these suits are just challenging a lot of the safeguards they have in place and, and 
undermining trust in, in the election. So, of well, course, is there evidence someone, that they've thrown out gazillions of ballots because I of believe, signatures mismatching? Yeah, I believe they cited a number in there, uh, you know, at least several hundred just being thrown out in the last presidential election. I might have that figure wrong, but yes, the uh, applications and ballots get thrown out because someone working at a board of elections says, oh, this signature doesn't really look like it matches up. And then, so they feel a lot of people are being disenfranchised here. But uh, I'll just note that, uh, you know, these lawsuits, uh, if <laughs> There's someone else undermining trust in the mail-in voting process. <laughs> Somebody very high up in our yeah, country. Yeah, <laughs> he, he was at it again. Okay, it's this weekend, the CLE. All right, that's a, a newsy Monday as usual, and I imagine it's going to be a newsy week. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We will return on Tuesday. Mm-hmm.